Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Speaking of Arkansas. I'm Greg Harton, editorial page editor for the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette. Tom Cotton is just a little more than four years into his first term as Arkansas's junior U.S. Senator. The Republican from Dardanelle represented the state's 4th Congressional District from 2013 to 2015. Then he joined the Senate by defeating incumbent Democrat Mark Pryor. In his relatively brief time in Washington, Cotton has gained national notice, and sometimes tough criticism for his often hardline conservative views. And he is from time to time mentioned as a rising GOP star with possible ambitions for the presidency. As we record this podcast, he's in northwest Arkansas during a two-week congressional recess. He joined us in our studio in Fayetteville where we discussed immigration, health care, the Mueller report, and other issues. Here's our interview. Senator Cotton, thanks for setting aside some time on a busy day for us today uh, to join us for our podcast. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Congratulations on the new podcast. (laughs) Well, thanks. I appreciate that. I'm joined today by uh, uh, Rusty Turner, our editor here at the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette, and uh, let's just dive right in. Uh, There's a lot going on in Washington, uh, around the nation. Uh, Give us an idea of uh, some of the issues that are kind of front and center for you right now uh, of the of the many topics, uh, what what's uh, what's got your focus focus right now? Yeah, there are a lot of issues, um, a lot of things swirling in the news as well. My focus is always trying to serve the people of Arkansas, trying to make this a better state to live and work, and also trying to do the right thing for our country. Um, you may have noticed that Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi didn't get off on the best of feet in January with the government shutdown. I, I think that's influenced our ability to pass major legislation. So I'm trying to focus on where I can find some bipartisan agreements and make some incremental progress. So, for instance, just a couple weeks ago, I introduced legislation with Chuck Schumer, the Democratic leader, that would crack down on Chinese fentanyl manufacturers. Fentanyl is a uh, very deadly synthetic opioid, many times deadlier than heroin or other opiates. And there's compelling evidence that Chinese manufacturers, with the support of the Chinese government, intentionally overproduce it send it to Mexican drug cartels, and then flood our streets. Um, Another example of legislation where we have bipartisan support, I I think we can pass it even in a divided Congress, is a bill I'll introduce very soon with Gene Shaheen, a Democrat from New Hampshire, to help military spouses with professional licenses. This is an issue that I've heard going back to my time as an Army leader. You have a service member who has a husband or a wife with a professional license. It could be a lawyer, a doctor, a nurse, could be a beautician, a landscaper. The service member gets moved across state lines and the state doesn't recognize that professional license, so it deprives that family of a second income. Our legislation will allow states to enter into an interstate compact to recognize each other's licenses for military service members. So for instance, if you have a service member moving from Dice Air Force Base in Texas who's got a wife that's a beautician there, they get uh, moved to Little Rock Air Force Base that uh, woman can then start cutting hair and styling hair in central Arkansas. It's probably good for the local barbershops and beauty salons there because it gives them an extra worker, but also really good for that family. Those are the kind of things where we, I think we can make incremental progress. Um, you know, It's never easy to get bills passed in Washington, but where we can find bipartisan agreement. Of course, we always will pass the annual spending bills, the defense bill. I write about you know one quarter of the defense bill as chairman of the Army and the Air Force subcommittee on that committee. The Intelligence Committee continues its work behind the scenes, working its, uh, passing its intelligence bill, which is mostly classified. Those are the kind of must-pass bills that 
uh, happen every year, sooner or later, um, probably later, <laughs> given the divisions between the White House and the House of Representatives. But uh, in the meantime, I'm working to find that kind of common ground, e even if it's not going to be landmark legislation. You know, it's not going to be something that they write about in the history books. It's still going to make life better for our Kansans and make this country a better place. You had had a, a bill that you introduced uh, that had a kind of a Northwest Arkansas connection involving the unwashed poppy seeds. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, this is the, the Stephen Hockla Jr. Uh, unwashed poppy seed bill. Um, terrible story. I learned about a year ago at a roundtable in Little Rock uh, with law enforcement officials. Um, Steve and Betty Hockla, uh, Stephen Jr.'s parents, had traveled down. They told me the story about Steve Jr.'s uh, terrible uh, overdose. He lived here in Fayetteville, and he had bought unwashed poppy seeds off of uh, Amazon. Now, unwashed poppy seeds are what they sound like. They're poppy seeds that come from the poppy plant, which ultimately creates uh, all kinds of opiates that have not been washed and therefore had their trace morphine removed. Um, there are techniques you can use to take poppy seeds that have not been washed and brew them into a kind of tea. It helps some people with sleeping, other people with digestive issues, but it also, if um, there's enough trace morphine on those seeds can be deadly and tragically that's what happened to Stephen Jr. He overdosed on these unwashed poppy seeds. He was not addicted to heroin, he was not using fentanyl or anything else. Uh, when this came to my attention I, I was kind of stunned that this, these products were available widely online. So the first step I took was to immediately be in touch with Walmart and Amazon, the two biggest retailers. Walmart was very cooperative and immediately took it off their website. Amazon did initially, now it's back on. They're reluctant to take it off. I think that's very regrettable. The way to nip this in the bud, though, is to make it illegal to sell those unwashed poppy seeds in our country, to put them underneath the regulated jurisdiction of the Food and Drug Administration. We've connected the Hakalas with the FDA. They may be able to take some regulatory action, but I hope that our legislation will pass because this is, again, not a partisan issue. Many Democrats in the Senate represent families who have lost a child uh, or a loved one to unwashed poppy seeds. I think it would surprise most Arkansans to know that this product is even on the market and is even a threat to our families, but it, but it really is. And there's no legitimate use to have them either. You know, you can make your poppy seed pound cakes or muffins by yeah. getting washed poppy seeds at Walmart. You don't need unwashed poppy seeds. Just another example of the kind of legislation that will make a difference uh, in the lives of Arkansas families. Um, even if it perhaps doesn't go down in the history books. I want to want to ask a uh, question about health care. Uh, where do we stand uh, in Congress right now on, on health care reform? Uh, it's been obviously a very uh, uh, controversial topic, a very active topic over the last uh, two and a half years in Congress. So where do we stand now? And particularly, uh, what's your thinking on um, uh, regulations to protect coverage of pre-existing conditions and also addressing the high cost of prescription drugs. Sure. Um, again, with the differences that we have uh, between the two parties, especially between the House of Representatives and President Trump, I don't expect much landmark sweeping legislation about health care. Um, we can make some incremental progress, though. Uh, uh, prescription drugs in particular, you know, I've introduced multiple pieces of legislation or taken multiple actions to work with the administration to try to get the price of prescription drugs under control. A couple years back, um, I had legislation that would have accelerated the approval of second generic drugs. There's a strong body of evidence that says that the price of prescription drugs is affected most by the second generic. So you have a, a drug that is branded and under patent protection, a monopoly. It comes off patent, it gets uh, a generic. 
Many people still prefer the branded drug though, but the second generic is what really drives competition uh, and therefore drives prices down because at that point you have a choice between not just the branded drug and the generic, but between two generics as well. The FDA ended up uh, um, adopting the, as a regulatory matter my policy for my legislation, so now they are accelerating the approval of second generics. Another piece of legislation I have uh, would address one of the many ways in which big pharmaceutical companies game the patent protection system. Um, I think most Arkansans realize that medical researchers and scientists and doctors have been a true blessing uh, for our society. They've created life-saving drugs and drugs that extend and improve the quality of our lives. Um, we should honor those innovations and those inventions with patent protections. The problem is you can get lawyers coming in that then they game the system. One of the worst examples of that is what uh, Allergan did with Restasis, the dry eye drug. It was coming off patent. They not only filed uh, a very dubious patent extension, they then transferred the rights to that patent to the Mohawk Indian tribe in New Jersey. Then they turned around and leased those rights back from the Mohawk Indian tribe, which it may not surprise you to know doesn't have a long history of pharmaceutical innovation. <laughs> and when they were sued in court, their claim was, you can't sue us. The owner of this property right is an Indian tribe, which has tribal sovereign immunity from federal court lawsuits. So you can see the kind of uh, games they play to extend their monopoly protections. Now, fortunately, the federal courts ruled against that claim. The Supreme Court recently denied review of it, um, but that's just in one court. So to try to ensure that that doesn't happen anywhere else in the country, I've got legislation that would prevent that, prevent that kind of, kind of gaming of the system. There are other steps that the administration is, is taking that uh, you know, I look forward to seeing and I, I hope I can support that will try to get under control the uh, power of pharmacy benefit managers. They're the middleman distributor between pharmaceutical companies and other distributors and pharmacists that are serving Arkansans in storefronts. Um, they've developed a lot of power in our marketplace and so, there's some evidence that the high price of prescription drugs are driven in part by the way they put their formularies together. Um, we've got legislation uh, in the Senate that would reassure anyone with a pre-existing condition that whatever happens to health care in our country, anyone with a pre-existing condition will be able to stay on their insurance or be able to transfer insurance or move between insurance systems if, for instance, you lose your job and you go into Medicaid or if you're a senior, you go into Medicare, but then you go back to um, a job, you can get back into employer-provided insurance. I know that's a source of real concern for a lot of Arkansans, and I sponsored that legislation in part because I want all Arkansans with a pre-existing condition to know that we are going to ensure that they have access to quality, affordable health insurance. Okay. And uh, there's, there's great concern about what happens to the price of premiums in the individual market, not the employer market, but the ind individual insurance market um, uh, with with uh, the guarantee of, of coverage for pre-existing conditions that, that they're some of the proposals uh, include allowing those premiums to go up. Uh, any any thoughts about that? And, and, and how yeah, so, that so, so when I say we're going we're to ensure that people with pre-existing conditions have access to insurance, I, I mean genuine and real access. I don't mean saying that, you know, if you pay 150% of your salary, you can get health insurance. No, I mean genuine and real access. But one way we do that is that we, in the long term, again, I don't think Nancy Pelosi's house is going to agree to this, but in the long term, we have a health insurance industry that is, as always has been in this country, primarily regulated by our state governments, not the federal government, because our population here in Arkansas has different needs than, say, the population of Maine or Washington, California, Florida. Um, 
and that people can make the kind of choices they need for their own health insurance. So, for instance, you know, when I got into uh, Congress six years ago, I didn't have any children. I didn't really need a plan that covered pediatric dental or pediatric checkups. I have two young boys now, obviously. I want that kind of plan. That's a choice that should be up to me. That's a choice that a million Arkansas families should be able to make for themselves to get the kind of insurance that they need. Um, that's the long-term solution, is to give our families more choices about the insurance that they need to cover their own particular situations. But the coverage for uh, Americans with pre-existing conditions is always going to be uh, present, and I, if I have anything to do with it, it will be affordable as well. Uh, let's talk for a minute about the, the report by Special Counsel Mueller on the uh, investigation into Russian interference in our U.S. elections. When you read that report, what do you see in there that gives you concern? What I see in there that gives me concern is what I've seen for years, which is Russia's meddling in our uh, democratic processes. That's not a surprise. That's always been the case. That's what Russia does. You know, the CIA has declassified documents going back decades showing that Russia uses those exact same techniques, propaganda, disinformation, espionage, to try to undermine confidence in our government or try to divide American opinion. One example that y'all may remember is the protests in 1983 over the deployment of intermediate-range nuclear missiles to Europe. This was in response to Russia, then the Soviet Union, deploying its own intermediate-range nuclear missiles into its Western Front or into the Warsaw Pact countries. Um, massive protests in Central Park in New York or in France, um, in the UK. We now know because of declassified archives, a lot of those protests were funded and they were driven by the KGB. Some of the um, information that reports, some of the work we've done on the Senate Intelligence Committee, not all of which has been released publicly yet, but soon will be, um, shows the exact same techniques. Like Ru Russia will, Russian intelligence services will use social media, say Facebook, to intentionally divide Americans against each other. So they'll use one Facebook account to promote um, you know, folks who are showing up to protest the police for police-involved shootings, and they'll use another Facebook account to send people to the exact same event to defend the police. That's the kind of techniques that Russia used to, to divide Americans and to undermine our democracy. Not just us. They do it in other countries uh, in Europe as well, our NATO allies, but us especially, because Russia has always referred to us as the main enemy. So I, I think in all the controversy that swirls around the Mueller report, um, all the claims that the Democrats are making about the president and his campaign, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that Vladimir Putin and the Russian intelligence service are not Democrats, and they're not Republicans, they're Russians, and they view us as the adversary. And they will do the exact same thing again in the future if we allow them to do it. That's why we're taking so many steps to insulate our elections and our campaigns from those kinds of uh, activities in the future. So, so Jared Kushner, the president's uh, son-in-law and, and aide, White House aide, uh, spoke this week and, 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 and sort of poo-pooed the whole idea of Russia uh, meddling and, and uh, you know, said that it was a couple of Facebook ads, you know, it, it just at, I think it was at this uh, Time 100 event. Um, so we, we keep hearing this message out of the White House that it's just not that big a deal. Uh, it, it, it sounds like you feel like it's a big deal for, for many generations uh, that it has been. But, but um, so, so how do you respond to the, to the White House and, and their casting? Of so this? so here's, here's what I, I've said for a couple years now. And again, I, there's a lot of stuff I've seen um, that is not public. Some of it won't become public. Uh, I assure you, though, that what's not 
what's not public, what is classified, simply provides more evidence for my point. The point that Vladimir Putin and Russian intelligence services are not Republicans and Democrats, they are Russians. And they, Vladimir Putin in particular, could not stand Hillary Clinton, wanted to undermine her, wanted to discredit her expected presidency, because I think that's what he expected to win, just like most people in Washington expected as well. They do everything they can to undermine our democratic processes. I divide those into kind of like into three categories, or maybe if you think visually like the bull, a bullseye. The, the core of the bullseye is our election machinery and our vote counting uh, processes. That would be the biggest coup that Russian uh, intelligence services could score is if they somehow were able to manipulate the votes on election night or manipulate our electoral rolls. There's no evidence that that happened in 2016 or in 2018 for that point. Um, one point I've made to our Secretary of State, first Mark Martin and now John Thurston, and to our county clerks as well, is the simple way to make sure that doesn't happen to us here is to always have paper backups. Electronic voting is fine, make sure you have a paper backup. Um, that's the case now, I think, in all 75 counties, in part because of the education process we've undertaken. Um, should be the case in every county in America. Um, the second circle out is um, which, what Russia calls active measures. So actively undertaking to hack into email accounts or to hack into databases. Obviously, Russia did that. They did it to the Democratic National Committee. They did it to John Podesta, um, the uh, Clinton campaign chairman. I, if I recall correctly, they did it to Debbie Wasserman Schultz as well, who was then the Democratic National Committee chair. And they published that through WikiLeaks. Um, that's a bad thing. We should do more to stop it. All campaigns, just like all businesses, should take you know, simple cybersecurity measures to prevent that from happening. Um, and it can have an effect on the campaign. There's no doubt about that when that kind of information gets published. The outer circle, and I think this is what Mr. Kushner was referring to when he spoke, the outer circle is what Russia does through things like Facebook or Twitter or so forth. And in, in that sense, it was a fairly minimal expense that Russia used. You know, if you look at what we estimate they spent on Facebook ads or Twitter accounts or what have you, it was a mere drop in the bucket of the billions of dollars that Americans spend on our own elections. People writing checks for $5 to, to uh, Hillary Clinton or $10 to Donald Trump. Um, again, we should take steps and we should hold the tech companies to account for letting Russia use their platforms to spread that kind of misinformation and propaganda. But that is a far cry from the impact you have by hacking into emails or databases of campaigns and parties, and certainly a, a much farther cry from that core bullseye, which is our voter registration and vote counting processes. Does the president do a disservice to our country when he when he is constantly trying to diminish the role of the Russians so, in this kind of so, involvement? So based on my conversation with the president, what he is talking about is that, that use of social media or other kind of propaganda, uh, his view. And again, it, it's, not, it's not wrong, is that that is a drop in the bucket of what Americans ourselves say and spend on our elections. But no, he very much understands the threat that Russian intelligence service, and not just Russia, it's China and other countries as well, pose to the, the actual machinery of our elections, the voter registration processes and the vote tabulation mechanisms. And the U.S. government, I can tell you, is taking great steps, much for, much better than where we were in 2016, to insulate those things, just like we here in Arkansas have done when it comes to using paper ballots. I'm going to shift uh, to a different topic. Um, Jared Kushner also said this week um, that he uh, he has been working on a plan he was going to present to President Trump um, on immigration uh, and that that plan 
would address border security. It would address um, moving us toward a more merit-based immigration system, and then also um, ensuring our uh, our ability to to uh, um, support humanitarian values uh, in dealing with with uh, immigrants and migrants. Um, I know you have consulted with the White House on immigration issues, so. What do you know about that plan? Uh, are there aspects of it uh, that you are familiar with, and um, you know, are there aspects of it you support or, or don't support? Yeah, so so uh, I'm pleased to have the president's support for my legislation, uh, the RAISE Act, which would substantially change for the first time in 50 years the way we grant green cards in this country. It'll probably surprise most of our Kansans to know of the 1 million, 1.1 million green cards we grant every year, only about one out of six one out of seven is granted based on someone's employment status or their job skills. Almost all of that comes from chain migration for family members, not just spouses and children, and children, but for parents and siblings. And ultimately, the reason it's called chain migration, that means that they can then bring their siblings and their spouses and their children to this country as well. So almost six out of seven, seven out of eight green cards that we grant are, have nothing to do with your job status, your education level, your ability to speak English. Um, it's all about your family status. That's not what we need to succeed in our country, to get the kind of workers that we want to get that can contribute to our economy, stand on their own two feet from the day they get here. So my legislation, modeled on Australia's approach, modeled on Canada's approach, which is proven to work, would eliminate almost all the current categories of green cards and simply create an objective points-based system that we'd run every six months to award green cards based on things like your education level and your degree. So you get more points if you have a PhD in chemistry, for instance, or computer science. Your age, because the younger you are, the longer you have to work and pay taxes and contribute to our society. Um, your ability to speak English. The job offer you already have in hand and what it will pay. You know, a $100,000 job in Northwest Arkansas means a lot more than it does in, say, San Francisco and a couple other categories. I believe the president's, uh, or I believe that what Mr. Kushner will propose to the president will look very similar to what the RAISE Act does when it comes to awarding green cards. Not surprisingly, since the president endorsed the legislation that I introduced about a year and a half ago. Some of the other measures um, are more emergency measures that are responding to the crisis we see at the southern border. You know, our, our immigration system, both the legal side of it and the physical infrastructure is not really designed for the challenge we face today. It was designed for the common kinds of illegal immigration that this country had faced for decades, which is mostly young Mexican men coming to this country to work illegally. Today, we see a surge at our border of record proportions of uh, people from Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras with children, they claim are their children, oftentimes are not their children, come to our borders, not running away from the Border Patrol agents, but running to them and claiming asylum. Most of those asylum claims are bogus. I don't dispute that those three countries have high levels of violence and high levels of poverty, but that's not a valid claim for asylum under our country's laws, unless that violence is directed at you because of your religion or your political beliefs or your status as a ethnic minority. Um, so those are mostly going to be emergency measures they're badly needed because our system is at the breaking point at our southern border right now. Um, I'm, I will just say I have measured expectations about the willingness of the Democrats in the House to pass any big immigration measure like my bill, the RAISE Act. I hope that we can at least address the emergency that we face at our southern border. 
It seems related to immigration that, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that, you know, we, we obviously want to, you know, stop the illegal immigration. But it seems at the same time that you've uh, been interested in, in really reducing the amount of legal immigration that happens in our country. Um, is, is Does that make sense to, to, to clamp down on both sides of that? Or, or should we open well, the, up legal immigration to, to create a better path for people? Well, I, I think it's important to note that we are approaching the highest number of foreign-born residents in our country we've ever had approaching the level we had in the 19-teens and the 1920s, which ultimately led to the 1924 Immigration Act that essentially stopped all immigration in this country. Um, I don't think it's a coincidence that for the next 40 years under that that law, once we got through the Depression and the war, we had periods of unparalleled economic growth and widespread prosperity for working-class Americans. Um, the numbers are open to debate, though, once you get the character and the kinds of immigration we need. We, need, we do need more high-skilled immigration. Um, there's strong evidence for that. Unskilled and low-skilled immigration, I'm much more skeptical about. Wages for working-class Americans have been stagnant for a very long time. They've started to improve over the last two or three years. I would hate to see those improvements in working-class wages halted or even reversed because we have a flood of new unskilled and low-skilled immigrants. And frankly, the people that would hurt, hurt most are the, are the last generation of immigrants. The last generation of immigrants who came here who were either unskilled or low-skilled are working in industries and working in jobs are most likely to face competition from new immigrants. And I want to focus on jobs and wages for Americans, whether their ancestors came over on the Mayflower or whether they just took the oath of citizenship last week. That's where my priority is. And there's no doubt that having more and more unskilled and low-skilled immigration is bad for working-class Americans who, have, for the first time, starting to see wage increases. Again, the numbers are open to debate. The numbers are sometimes driven by factors beyond the control of folks in Washington. You know, when it comes to how the point system will work, or the number of refugee or asylum claims that we can grant in any given year, or you know, where countries have natural disasters and we allow their nationals who are in our country to stay here. Um, but I don't think we should have an increase in the number of immigrants we have here by any means, and either keeping levels the same or decreasing somewhat, I think, is the best approach. So how would you like uh, the changes that you advocate, um, how would you like that to impact the the fairly large immigrant population we have here in Northwest well, Arkansas? I, again, it, it's, it would be the immigrant pop if you just took, you know, say, 50,000 new Guatemalans, Hondurans, El Salvadorans who came here and they said, well, you've got an asylum claim and we can't keep you here because our, at the border because our detention facilities are closed, so leave and go into the country and maybe show up in a year for your hearing. And they all came here to northwest Arkansas. Those 50,000 new immigrants are most likely to be competing for jobs and wages with the immigrants we already have here. That's not good for those immigrants, and those immigrants know that. They tell me that. It's like, yeah, we, we came here the right way. We did the right thing. We waited to get a visa. Once we got a visa, we started applying for a green card. Um, you know, they feel like they did the right thing, and, and they are trying to build a life here and achieve the American dream just like anyone else wants. To flood northwest Arkansas with a large-scale influx of new unskilled and low-skilled labor would not be good for those workers. might be good for some businesses, but I'm worried about all Arkansans. I'm worried about all Americans, not just employers who sometimes would rather pay cheaper wages to their workers. I'd rather them see see them pay higher wages or give them better benefits or give them more job training or help them pay off student loans or what have you. Do you consider people who are here in northwest Arkansas illegally Arkansans? 
Well, I mean, if you're if you're not an American citizen, then you know you're an illegal alien here. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I while I mean, I wish my fellow man well wherever I find them in the world. You know, I serve my fellow citizens. Those are the people who elect me. My fellow citizens here in Arkansas. So, is there as we're talking about this and and this proposal as it as it comes forward. Is there going to be room to address uh, the so-called dreamers, the children of, of people who were brought here by their parents um, illegally before they were able to make decisions on their own and, and have lived yeah. their entire lives here? Uh, Rusty, we, we might, and, and I'm certainly open to that. I sponsored the president's last major immigration bill, and it, aside from my bill, the RAISE Act, which he endorsed, that would have solved that problem um, in a more generous fashion than I think anyone expected, either the president or some of the Republicans in Congress to approach. There are about 700,000 people in the program that Barack Obama created without legal authority that is currently enjoined in the courts will probably be overturned when it reaches the Supreme Court. But that's only the 700,000 people who fit those criteria that applied in the Obama administration. There's about 1.7, 1.8 million people who came here um, as children and have never really lived in another home. the legislation we proposed last year would have given them all legal status, with certain caveats, of course, for criminal records and so forth. And it would have allowed them ultimately to become an American citizen by the traditional paths anyone here who's like, if you're here on a valid student visa, you can ultimately get a work visa and ultimately apply for a green card, same thing. But it would have done so by also controlling the secondary effects of that decision. If you give legal status and ultimately the opportunity to apply for citizenship to 1.8 million young people who came here, you are guaranteed to get more parents trying to bring more children here to this country. I mean, what better gift can you give to your child than getting them American citizenship, even if it takes a long time? That's why our bill contained important border security provisions as well. Second, one of the main moral principles by which the Democrats wanted to grant legal status and ultimately citizenship to that population of young people who came here as young people, is that children shouldn't be held responsible for the sins and the crimes of their parents. But surely parents can be held responsible for the sins and crimes of the parents. If you don't end chain migration, if you don't end the ability of immigrants to bring their parents here without any uh, qualification whatsoever, then you're going to, again, encourage more people to bring more children here in the hopes that those kids get legal status and ultimately citizenship, and then their parents get it as well. It's not right for us to give those children who are now in their 20s or 30s legal status and then let them turn around and do the same thing for the parents who created the problem to begin with. So we had a very generous proposal for people who were in that category, but the Democrats didn't like our efforts to control the secondary effects of it. Uh, and the real question becomes whether or not they're willing to accept that compromise with the, controlling those secondary effects. Again, I have my doubts, but I I hope that I'll be proven wrong. <laughs> okay. Uh, this is an issue important here in Northwest Arkansas and to the state in general. But um, you know, I went to your website, and one of the opening photos of uh, your website is a beautiful shot of the Buffalo River. Do you think the state's doing enough to protect the Buffalo River? So I'll leave that in the hands of the legislature and the governor. I, I will say I know that they want to protect the Buffalo River. It's obviously a great treasure here in Arkansas. I don't think anybody. Um, anywhere cares more about the Buffalo River and the other natural blessings we have in this state and the people who use it. The outdoorsmen, the hikers, the kayakers, the hunters, the fishermen, the farmers, the ranchers, the foresters. Um, ultimately, uh, you know, the issues that 
we're facing right now in the Buffalo River are state issues. So I'll leave that in the cable hands of the, governor. The fact that it's a national river doesn't doesn't. Uh, but that, but it's it, it's, prim- it's primarily a decision for the governor and our state government and the legislature. I'll, I'll leave that in their hands. I, I trust them to make the right decision about it. Um, but I know that everyone wants to make sure that we protect and preserve our environmental uh, heritage here. Okay. Um, uh, last thought. I know we need to wrap up, but the. The president has taken a pretty hard line uh, in the last couple of days about uh, congressional subpoenas to people within the executive branch, Uh, has told some of his folks just not to not to respond to them. uh, as a member of the legislative branch, how do you feel about that? Um, well, there's a difference between people who serve in the president's cabinet and people who serve in the White House. I know Bill Barr is going to testify next week before the Congress. Bill Barr has said that he's fine if Bob Mueller wants to testify. Uh, they serve in the Department of Justice. It's very commonplace for us to have members of cabinet departments or agencies testify. It is extremely uncommon, and I can't remember in my six years in Congress ever having a White House aide testify. And I don't remember in the Obama administration having um, Susan Rice or Ben Rhodes or Dennis McDonough come testify. That gets to the core of the president's ability to get input from all viewpoints, make decisions uh, from his constitutional office. Um, so it's no surprise the president is saying his White House counsel is not going to come testify in front of Congress or his national security uh, team inside the White House. That's not a surprise at all. Um, and frankly, I don't, I don't know what the Democrats are looking for here. I mean, Don McGahn testified, you know, I think 30 times to Bob Mueller, and there's pages and pages and pages in the Mueller report of what he claims uh, was going on. They have everything they need. I think for the most part, they're just upset that the Mueller report proved that there was no collusion between Russia and the Trump campaign, and now they're just trying to string it out and have more investigations rather than trying to solve the people's business. Um, so all these things have to be decided on a case-by-case basis, Greg, in terms of requests for, in- for witness testimony, requests for documents, but there is a pretty sharp distinction between cabinet members on the one hand and White House aides on the other hand. Okay. Is there anything else you want to uh, touch on today? No, it's great to be in uh, Northwest Arkansas. I'll be back here on Sunday, May 19th to sign my new book, Sacred Duty, at Bentonville uh, Sam's Club. So everybody should come out and, 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 and join us there. And now, lo- that's, that's a book about the, uh, the guards. The, yeah, the, so the old guard of Arlington, uh, where I served between my time in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, they guard the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. They perform the military honor funerals in the cemetery. They perform ceremonies around the Capitol to include the state funeral of uh, George H.W. Bush back in December, about which you can learn more in the book. But it was a great honor to serve there and to pay tribute to our fallen heroes. And I want to tell their story, which has never really been told before. So uh, everybody can come out uh, on uh, Sunday, May 19th, and join us at Sam's Club and hear a little bit more about it. All right. Very good. Well, we sure appreciate you taking time to visit with us. Um, Wish you well on your journeys around uh, Arkansas, and uh, uh, we'll catch you next time. All right. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Rusty.